We continue with our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew called The Glory of God in the Face of Christ. Ultimately, when we look at our Lord Jesus, we see God. And this morning we come to Matthew chapter 4. Last time we had a look at the first 11 verses of the chapter, and this morning we're going to finish Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, from verse 12 through to verse 25. Matthew tells us, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And he goes on in Matthew 5, And when he saw the crowds, Jesus went up a mountain. His disciples came to him, and he taught them. And this is God's word. There's really far too much for us to look at in this passage of scripture this morning. But once again, what I want us to do is just look at the picture of Jesus that Matthew paints for us. We'll spend some time focusing in on some of the parts of the picture, filling in some of the background, and then looking at our response to this magnificent, magnificent picture. So here in Matthew chapter 4, we read about the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Matthew tells us that Jesus leaves Nazareth and goes to live in Capernaum, which was a tiny village right on the edge of the Lake of Galilee. Matthew tells us that this took place to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's a beautifully poetic passage of scripture. And you might remember that it comes to us from Isaiah chapter 9, which is a passage we read every Christmas. 
Because you may remember that just a few verses later, Isaiah goes on to say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And that day has now dawned with the coming of Jesus. Which makes the first words of Jesus, the first words of his public ministry, seem a little strange. Have a look again at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? The kingdom is near. Remember, that was exactly the same message that John the Baptist had preached back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I can understand John saying that the kingdom of heaven is near because he did say, after me will come one who is more powerful than I. I'm not the Christ. I'm just a voice in the desert. The king is still coming. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But with the coming of Jesus, the king is now here. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The king is here and yet Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Wasn't it here already? What's going on? We did touch on this when we were back in chapter 3, but I think it bears repeating. The Old Testament scriptures clearly portray Yahweh as king. Psalm 93, for example, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. God reigns. But the Old Testament also recognizes that men and women have rejected God's rule and reign, believed the serpent's lie, and have therefore brought evil and sin and pain, not just to themselves, but on the whole created order. And so in the Old Testament scriptures, God promises that one day he will come and restore his reign through his coming king, the anointed one, the Messiah which is exactly what the passage in Isaiah describes. However, what nobody could ever possibly have imagined was how the kingdom of heaven would come, how God's reign would be restored through his king. But here in Matthew chapter 4, the Bible gives us a picture of how God's kingdom comes. And broadly speaking, we can say that the kingdom comes in two stages. The kingdom has come secretly in grace and the kingdom will come triumphantly in glory. The kingdom has come because the king is here and the kingdom will come when he returns. Before we look at some aspects of this kingdom, let's just consider why the kingdom comes in this way. In his book, Mere Christianity, the Cambridge scholar and former atheist C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, why is God landing now 
in this enemy-occupied world in disguise? Why isn't he landing in force, invading it? Is it that he isn't strong enough? Well, Christians believe he is going to land in force. We don't know when, but we can guess why he's delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will look like when he does. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what's the good of saying you're on his side then? For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That won't be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen. You see, it's fine for us to long for a time when all evil will disappear until we realize that the evil is not out there somewhere, but it resides in my own heart. And if Jesus had to have come to eliminate all evil, he would have had to eliminate me too. And so the kingdom comes in two stages. Jesus comes first in humility and hiddenness, and in his life and teaching tells us that he is the king. And this is good news because his reign is good, a reign of justice and peace and joy. He urges us to accept his reign in our own lives now. He also tells us that one day he will come and set up his kingdom permanently and universally and eternally. That he will destroy all evil and restore all things which in fact is bad news because we are all by nature rebels, rebels that will experience God's coming reign as judgment. But the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry takes place on the cross where the king dies in our place, bearing our punishment, so that all who believe in him and accept his reign right now will experience his coming reign as justice and joy and peace. All of that and so much more is contained within that little phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But let's spend a few moments just looking at some aspects of the kingdom of God that Matthew shows us in these verses. There are many that we could choose from, but let's just look at three. We said that the kingdom comes secretly in grace and so notice firstly that the kingdom is ordinary and unobtrusive. I wonder if you notice the progression in the passage. Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And his next act is to call for fishermen. It's such a contrast. You would have expected with that amazing announcement of his coming or the, of the coming of the kingdom that we would hear something dramatic, some military maneuver some great act, but here we have Jesus calling not even religious leaders or politicians or government officials or soldiers or rich business owners, but fishermen. There was nothing glamorous about it at all. It is ordinary. 
And yet this act of calling these four men to himself would change the history of the entire world. Later in chapter 13, Jesus would say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It looks like nothing at all, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. The kingdom is growing right here and now as men and women and young people submit to Jesus as their king. But you can't always see that. And sometimes it looks quite puny and small and unimpressive, which makes sense in God's topsy-turvy kingdom where Jesus reigns from a cross. Secondly, we see in this passage that the kingdom expands through the proclamation of good news. In verse 23, we read that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And at the end of the chapter, we read that when the crowds come to him, he sits down and teaches them the good news of the kingdom. The word good news is actually one Greek, one word in the Greek language, a euangelion, which is translated as gospel or good news. And it actually had a secular use in the first century. In first century Rome, the word gospel meant proclaiming the good news that the emperor had triumphed in battle. The herald would run ahead of the victorious army and arrive in Rome and proclaim the good news, the gospel of victory, and that the king was coming. I've mentioned a couple of times over the past few weeks that Christianity is unique in that it is good news and not good advice. And that's an important distinction all the other religions and philosophies of our world are good advice, things that you need to do in order to be right with God. Christianity is unique in that it is the good news of what God has already done for you. Advice is something you need to do. News is something you accept with joy. So imagine for a moment that I'm traveling to Stellenbosch on the N2 and suddenly my car starts making the most awful noises, black smoke starts billowing from the engine and after a couple of kilometers the engine stops altogether and I'm stuck on the side of the road. And so I call Pastor Bevan, who I know knows something about cars. This week on Tuesday, I said to Bevan, what did you do on your day off? And he said, no, I removed the catalytic converter from my car and welded it back on again. So I know that Bevan knows something about cars. So imagine that I phone Bevan, and Bevan starts to give me advice. He says, Andrew, it sounds like the left-hand side piston of the gasket underneath the fuel pump, the one just to the left of the alternating AC-DC carbon battery needs aligning with the syncopated metal gears on the outside shaft of the timing belt valves. What you need to do is to take a number 10 spanner along with a 3.4 rotating Allen key, remove the catalytic converter, bypass the radiator and align the piston to within 0.2 millimeters of the sump. That would be advice. It would all be up to me. And you would never hear from me ever again. <laughs> or 
I could phone Pastor Bevan and he could give me good news. Andrew, I know exactly where you are on the end too. I'll be there in seven minutes. Do you see the difference? And can you sense the relief? There's all the difference in the world between good advice, something that I need to do, and good news of something that has already been done for me on my behalf. We're only in Matthew chapter 4 right now, but in the rest of Jesus' life and teaching, we discover in the words of Jesus in chapter 20 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Christian gospel is the good news that Jesus has triumphed in battle, that sin and death have been defeated, that the King is coming, that your sin and my sin is nailed to the cross, that we can stand before, that we do stand if we believe in Jesus, we stand before him clothed in his righteousness and there's nothing we need to do other than to accept it. That is great news indeed. Thirdly, in this passage, we see glimpses of the kingdom right now. That's what the miracles of Jesus are about. If you look at verse 23, we read that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The miracles are signposts, and they point to two things. Firstly, they point to Jesus as the king. As we've seen, Jesus comes in humility and in hiddenness. He disguises himself as a commoner. But because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, every now and again we have these flashes of light, white lightning from underneath his ordinary clothes, as it were. The miracles show us that Jesus is the king and that he has the power to deliver God's new world. And the, sign, the, the signposts, the miracles, point to something else too. They point to what the kingdom of heaven will one day look like when the dwelling of God is with men and women, and where he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. As one writer puts it, Jesus' miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but are also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are a promise to our hearts that the world we all long for is coming. I think it's important to see that Jesus' miracles are signs to the kingdom, not the kingdom itself. So one writer puts it like this, the miracles are signs to God's coming world, but they're only signs. What matters is God's coming kingdom. So in Mark chapter 1, Jesus leaves a crowd of people who are looking for him to bring healing to their sick, and he says, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. Jesus doesn't want people to get caught up with the sign and miss where it is pointing. Imagine a child entranced by a brightly colored sign to Disneyland and refusing to leave it. It's so lovely, she might say. But the real thing's just down the road, we reply. That's what the crowds are often like. Do some more miracles, they demand. But the real thing is down the road, says Jesus. If you mistake the sign of the for the reality, then you'll never take up your cross and follow Jesus. 
If your focus is on present miracles, present blessing, present prosperity, then you'll never deny yourself or lose your life for Jesus, and so you will not gain your life when Jesus returns. The priority of Jesus is proclamation because the focus of his ministry is the cross. The miracles save people temporarily, but they're only a sign. It is the cross which saves completely. What do we do with the picture of King Jesus and his kingdom that Matthew gives us in these verses? Well, Matthew gives us three responses. Firstly, as servants of the king, we submit our lives to Jesus as Lord. As servants of the king, we submit our lives to Jesus as Lord. And we see that in the lives of these first disciples. In verse 20, Matthew says about Simon and Andrew, at once they left their nets and followed him. And in verse 23, he says about James and John, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Simon and Andrew leave their fishing, James and John leave their father. And together, those two things represent the most important aspects of our lives as human beings. Interestingly, in Western culture, it's our jobs, our careers that are the most important thing about us. So that when you meet someone, the first question they ask you is, so what do you do? We define ourselves in terms of work. In many Eastern cultures, and even within some cultures within our own country, it's not really your work that matters, but your family, who your family is, and your relationship with that family. That's the most important thing about you. And so putting these two things together, we can say that allegiance to Jesus comes before any other earthly commitment at all, which makes sense if Jesus is king. I always remember a little phrase in one of Craig's sermons where he simply said, if Jesus is king, then he gets everything. If Jesus is the one who humbled himself, became human, became a servant, became obedient to death, even a shameful death on a cross, and if one day he will return to judge the living and the dead, I don't invite him into my life to be my advisor. I fall at his feet and say, command me. Following Jesus costs me everything, but also I gain everything too. And what does it mean to follow him? Well, we had a whole sermon series on this last year, so let me be brief. But, but essentially, following Jesus involves being with him, spending time with him in his word, learning to be like him, and doing the things that he would do if he were in my place. In one sense, I cannot do what Jesus did because he was uniquely the Son of God and had the specific mission of being the Savior of the world. Jesus was also a first-century single Jewish rabbi, not a 21st-century parent, accountant, student, pastor, or housewife. And so we have to think and we have to transpose a bit. Jesus wasn't a parent, but how would he parent if he were in my place? He wasn't a husband, but how would he be a husband if he were in my place? We keep on asking, what would Jesus do if he were in my place? And then we do it in obedience. 
As servants of the King, we submit our lives, every part of our lives and every moment of our lives to Jesus as King. But we don't just do this alone. Secondly, as the community of the King, we anticipate the consummation of his kingdom in our life together. So right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him creating a little community. Here we have the calling of four disciples. In total, there will be 12, mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel. God has always wanted not just individuals, but a community that will reflect his life together. And these little communities are supposed to be embassies of the kingdom of heaven where the laws and the values and the actions of God's kingdom are practiced right now in a foreign land. Our church family, us together, are supposed to be a radically alternative community which doesn't accept the norms of the world but rather the norms and the values of the coming kingdom. We anticipate the kingdom now in our life together. And Jesus will in fact outline some of that in the next few chapters in his Sermon on the Mount. And then thirdly, as ambassadors of the king, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. That in fact is what Jesus is calling his disciples to when he says, I will make you fishers of men. He isn't just making a clever joke. Uh, the term a fisher of men was used of Jewish rabbis who taught God's word. In this gap between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, he commissions his disciples and us to go out into all the world and make disciples, teaching them everything that he has taught us. We're to proclaim, we too are to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. As one writer puts it, we live in a culture where choice is everything and value judgments are relative, in which case I decide what is right for me. But the declaration of Christ's kingship cuts right across this. We don't invite people to make Jesus their king. We tell people that Jesus is their king. We don't invite people to meet Jesus we warn people that they will meet Jesus as their conquering king. We don't offer people a gospel invitation. We command people to repent and to submit to the coming king. Of course, we do so graciously and gently. We can't force or manipulate repentance. But one day, everyone will bow the knee before Jesus, one way or another. And so as ambassadors of the king, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. Recently, Michelle and I had the privilege of having a conversation with a lovely young Jew Jewish lady. We just happened to be in her shop and we got chatting with her and it was Michelle who picked up that she was Jewish because of some of the decorations. And as we chatted with her, we discovered that her and her husband work among Jewish university students in the city. And when we heard that she was Jewish, I simply said to her, this must be such a hard time for you. It was back in November, just after the attacks. And she said that it was. She spoke about some of the abuse and the ostracism that the students were facing. She spoke about fear for her own family. She was fairly ordinarily dressed, but she was worried when she walked outside with her two kids, with their yarmulkes and their prayer tassels. 
But then with utter sincerity and with joy in her face, she said to us, but as we tell our students, these things must happen before the Messiah comes and restores everything. And this lady was sincerely and passionately looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. It was wonderful to see the joy and the sincerity and the delight in her face. But my heart ached for her and I longed to say, but he has already come and is coming again. You've missed his first coming in humility, but you will indeed see his return in glory. I didn't say that in order not to be offensive. I tried to find uh, some more subtle ways during the rest of that week to engage with her. But this is what we've seen in our passage today then. That the kingdom has come secretly in grace and the kingdom will come triumphantly in glory. And right now you and I have the opportunity to say yes to the king so that when he returns, we can stand before him. And so we can stand and sing in a moment, Rejoice in glorious hope, our Lord the Judge will come. How can you rejoice about the coming of a judge? The only reason that we would be able to rejoice is because of the fact that the judge has stood in our place, taken the penalty for our sin already, so that when he returns, he will declare us not guilty. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we will stand before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy.